All right, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So Christmas is approaching. It's already in the air. We can hear it. We can see it. We can smell it. But today marks the first season of Advent. And Advent is a time where we reflect upon Christ's coming. That Jesus, the God-man, has entered into his own creation in real time and real space. And we also use this time to hope and anticipate for his return. And as those who waited patiently for their coming Redeemer, so we too must wait patiently. Now, in many traditions, Advent is four weeks long, and each, four, each week is used to highlight, to look at a theme. Hope, peace, joy, and love. This differs a little bit than the medieval tradition where the Advent themes were death, judgment, heaven, and hell in that order. Now, in some traditions, like the Anglican tradition, they don't just wait four weeks, they actually celebrate seven weeks. There's seven weeks of Advent. And they don't celebrate Christmas until Christmas Eve, the very last moment, because they want to dedicate seven weeks, not just four, but seven long weeks to take what one theologian called an unflinching inventory of darkness. An unflinching inventory of darkness. What is wrong with us? Now, during Advent, the nights are typically longer, and that's apt because despite what our culture wants to do with giving us Christmas joy and Christmas magic, Advent is a time to reflect upon our deep need, our helpless estate, and our desperate need for rescue. Fleming Rutledge says this of Advent. Every, every year, Advent begins in the dark. Every year, Advent begins in the dark. And that is where we find our psalmist this morning as he begins this passage. He is in darkness and in despair. And he wants to take us down this road so that by going through this journey with him, we would come out as people of great hope that we would wait expectantly with eagerness, with endurance, that we would learn to wait well. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we live in a culture where we hate waiting. 
and waiting is not easy. So I've got two questions for us today. First, how or why is waiting so hard? Why is waiting so hard? And second, how do we wait well? Why is waiting so hard? How do we wait well? First, why is waiting so hard? Now, if you've been reading with us in this passage or you've got your Bible with you, you might notice that at the way top, it starts by saying a song of ascents. It might be capitalized in your version. It might look like a title. Yeah, it, what it is, is it's a part of a collection. One of 15 psalms comprised of this collection that were used to be sung, to be meditated on, to be chewed on, as pilgrims in the Old Testament would take their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And as they would approach the holy city, they would literally ascend on hills. They would rise in elevation, and that's why they called it the Song of, of Ascents. And much like Advent, there was much buildup. There was much anticipation and preparation as they approached God to worship in His holy temple. And in this psalm, we see that He provides two metaphors, two metaphors to help illustrate why, why is waiting is so difficult. Two metaphors. First metaphor is that of someone who has been shipwrecked and is drowning at sea. And no matter how much he kicks, he is in desperate need for rescue. The second image is that of a watchman or a guard at night. He's on the night duty. He's got the night shift. And if you're a night nurse, I know you hate that very much. But you're on a night shift, and what happens in the dark? Well, you can't see very well. The blackness of the night obscures your vision. And so you have a difficult time of seeing possible enemies approaching you, and you're left in a very vulnerable position. And so a watchman desperately waits in the blackness of night for the break of day. And so these two metaphors show us our desperate need for rescue and our need to wait. The psalmist clues us in as to why it's so hard to wait, beginning in verse 1. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Here the psalmist cries out for mercy because of his iniquities. He has fallen short. He has failed. Now, if you're have been watching football for a while, then you might recognize the name Scott Norwood. Scott Norwood. In Super Bowl 25 in 1991, his team, the Buffalo Bills, were down by a single point with four seconds left. And he was counted on to make the decisive play in the decisive game. And he would be the decisive player, not as the quarterback, not as the running back or wide receiver, but as the field goal kicker. And I know it's a team game, but when you're the field goal kicker, it feels like it's just you, the ball, and the uprights. Down by a point, four seconds left, the decisive play. All eyes on Scott Norwood. The ball snapped, and the kick, and the ball goes, wide right 
wide right of the upright. Ouch. Ouch. And his team, the Buffalo Bills, would go on to lose the Super Bowl by a single point. Scott Norwood said that he hardly could recover from this moment, that he was never the same player ever again. He had a difficult time with his own city. Even his own city would call him Scott Norwood wide right, as to forever brand him as a failure. And after costing his city and his teammates a Super Bowl championship, he had this to say. If I had a second chance, maybe I'd concentrate more on form and follow through. Maybe not try to hit it so strongly. And after a long pause, he said, I'll never get that second chance. I might never get to the point where I'll totally forget about this. You can almost feel the weight of condemnation. You can sense the suspecting scrutiny from the eyes of the city from his teammates. You can almost hear the voice of condemnation. You are a nobody. You're a failure. And we too feel that weight sometimes. We too understand that scrutiny, that weight of condemnation. We didn't get into the school we wanted to get into. We let our parents down. We failed at romance. We find ourselves still in single status. We find that we're in the exact same place we were the previous year. We haven't advanced in our careers. We still don't have a family. And we, can't, we still can't fit in our clothes from our old clothes that we were hoping to get into. And a sense of failure the sense of letting others down, the sense of letting ourselves down creates this pressure to deal with the scrutiny, to do something about it. And it's our heart's natural inclination not to cry out to God, but to take matters into our own hands. And so what do we do? We kick ourselves and we kick faster. Some of us, we kick ourselves. We turn to self-destructive, self-denying, self-deprecating behaviors. We embrace the voices that condemn us, that we're no good. Maybe we really blew up during Thanksgiving this year, and things got really heated really quick, and our fuse ran out with our children, and it was not the holiday get-together that we were hoping for. And we're beating ourselves up because we let everybody down and we ruined everything for everybody. And we embrace those voices that condemn us. We beat ourselves up. We kick ourselves. Some of us, we kick ourselves. Others of us, we kick faster. We kick faster. We get busy. We buck up. We put more hours into work. We read more books on parenting. We put more effort in trying to 
lose weight and get in shape. Some of us get really religious. After service, when you get together with your families, when you get together with a group of friends, ask yourself the question, ask yourselves, are you more of the type to kick yourself or to kick faster? And you'll find, whichever way is your leaning, that there are both ways to deal with the scrutiny by our own doings, by what we do. Something has to be done, and we want to take care of it. We don't like to wait. We don't like to cry out for mercy. We don't like to ask for help. But if it's up to us to deal with the scrutiny, if it's us, up to us to perform, if it's up to us to kick faster, kick harder, jump higher, swim longer, to kick ourselves, then it'll inevitably lead to condemnation or exhaustion or both. It's hard for us to wait for rescue, but the more we kick, the more we sink. It's hard for us to wait for rescue, but the more we kick, the more we sink. So how do we wait well? How do we wait well? If it's hard for us to wait, if we're only hurting ourselves by the way we're doing it, how do we wait well? How do we become a people of hope? Now the psalmist comes to the end of his rope, and he knows that he has to cry out for help, for mercy. He knows that he needs rescue. And rescue, by definition, means it comes from the outside. It comes from outside of ourselves. Verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. God, use your... He's saying, God, use your ears. He's using anthropomorphic language. God, use your ears. He makes his appeal vivid and desperate. Use your ears. It's as if he wants God to lean over to hear him. Help. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. Now the original language speaks more like this. If you were to watch my sins, God, if you were to watch my sins, if you were to keep score, if you were to take notes, if you had a filing cabinet of all the times it couldn't measure up, I would be undone. I mean, we could hardly stand the scrutiny of our peers, of our parents, of our bosses, our spouses, and to stand under the judgment of scrutiny of the eyes of God, if He were to count these very things against us, if these were things were to count, then we would be undone. And what we have here in this psalm is an unflinching inventory of darkness. He looks at the bottom of his heart and he doesn't like what he sees. But it doesn't lead him to despair, but it drives him to hope. Verse 4. But, I love that word, but. But with you, there's forgiveness. But with you, there's forgiveness. 
that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his, hope, in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The word wait here is not a shaky uncertainty of whether or not someone's going to show up, that there's going to be a no-show. There's not uncertainty. This word wait is, is characterized by hope that is solid and secure because the object of his hope, the one in whom he hopes, is more reliable than the rising of the sun each and every day. And he is able to face the scrutiny because he has tasted forgiveness. He has tasted forgiveness. And he has experienced rescue. In the 1950s at John Hopkins, Kurt Richter experimented with Norwegian wharf rats. And he took these two groups of rats because he wanted to see how long these guys can swim. And in the first group, he took these rats and put them in in an empty bucket and and he began to fill it with water. And these rats would you know, kind of tiptoe and try to keep the heads above the water. You know, as waters rose, they, they would start to tread on water and they would start the timers to see how long they'd be able to swim before they would drown. And Richter and his team noticed that just about every single rat, every single rat, uh, could not swim much longer than 20 minutes. That was the peak, 20 minutes. Sad, I know. But he took the second group of rats and they put them in a bucket and they proceeded with the same experiment. Water goes in, tiptoe, rats tiptoe. They start to tread on water as the waters rise and the timers would start. And as, as expected, around a 20 minute mark, each of these rats would start to drown. But at the very moment where each rat lost hope and they stopped paddling, the team would snatch them out of the water and rescue them from sure death. And they gave these rats some time to recuperate, to catch their breath, and they proceeded with a third experiment with the same group of rats. Put the rats in a bucket, water rose, tiptoed rats, the waters rise, they start to tread, they start their timers. And you would imagine they're anxiously observing these rats as a 20 minute mark comes around. And to their surprise, every single rat was swimming at the 20 minute mark. 40 minutes, still swimming. An hour, two hours, four hours, eight hours. Could you imagine they all swam over 24 hours? Why? Because they experienced rescue. And so have we. But unlike these rats, our hope is so much greater. They didn't have a guarantee. They didn't have anything to really bank on. But we do. Our hope comes in the object of our hope, the one in whom we, he, we trust. And the hope is solid and secure because of His Word. The psalmist says, in His Word, I put my hope. We can wait on God. Our hope is not shaky, but it is solid and secure. You might be asking, 
well, what exactly do we have to bank on here? I mean, what exactly has been promised? I mean, is my business going to take off? Is the surgery going to be successful? Is a treatment going to work? Am I ever going to get married? Are we ever going to have kids? And if that's you today, I really empathize with you. Um, if you're going through infertility pain, my wife and I, um, Kendra and I, struggled with that for three and a half years. And I don't take that pain lightly. And we were fortunate that God gave us our twins, Karis and Judah. But God never makes that promise. He never promised to give us what we demand that we give, that he gives. So what hope do we have? How do we wait well? Paige Benton uh, reminds us that God's love for us is not shaky, but we are so solid and secure. She talks about how when she was single, before she became Paige Benton Brown, she talked frequently about how lonely she was and how she longed for a husband, how, to get, how she wanted to get married. And she said this, I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new corning wear. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding no. God would not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. Could God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than on the monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God would not be any less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition, but the essence of his person, not an attitude, but an attribute. How can we wait well? The psalmist answers, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist gives two reasons for us to hope. He gives us two resources for us to wait well. The first resource to help us in our journey is that with the Lord there is steadfast love. That God cannot love us any less on a Tuesday afternoon. When it's just watching TV or when we're going to go enter into surgery. Then on the monumental Friday afternoon when He hung on a cross in my place. That is covenantal language, steadfast love. It is a love that describes God's loyal, faithful love that's not going anywhere. We can bank on it. His grace, His kindness, His favor, it's unmerited. Second resource He gives us to help us in our journey is that with the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption, I like that. That's delicious. Kendra and I, when we first got married, she would, she would always notice that I was so eager to help her. And she was always so skeptical and cynical as to 
when this crazy mad love would you know, finally fade away and, and, and run out. And she'd always joke, when is the love tank going to run dry? When is it going to go empty? As if to imply that it's limited. But God's redemption is not limited. It is plentiful. There's plenty enough in the tank. And when we look at the cross, we can be confident that there's more of where that came from. Because God withheld nothing to redeem us and to redeem all of us, everything, the whole thing, all of it. We can wait on God. Our hope is not shaky, but is solid and is secure. In the musical, Man of La Mancha, there is a madman who thinks himself as Don Quixote, a medieval knight. And he has this lofty dream to defeat evil, to destroy all that's wrong with the world. And he has this quest to seek out the good in all the world that is dark and filled with despair. And in the play, he runs into this woman named Aldonza. And Aldonza is a prostitute who is literally covered in filth. And she had been beaten and mistreated by men. And Don Quixote, despite her filth and wretchedness, all Don Quixote can see is beauty. And he gives her a new name. He says, you are Dulcinea. Dulcinea, which means sweetness. She is taken back by this name. It catches her off guard. Neither she nor anyone else believes that she of all people is worthy of such a name. Dulcinea. Sweetness. And she pushes back. It feels unfitting. And she furiously insists that, that he stops calling her that. He insists, that is not my name. She says this, torture me no more. Stop torturing me with your sweetness. I am no one. I am nothing. I'm only Aldonza, the whore. But Don Quixote is persistent and pursues, and he sings to her, You are my lady Dulcinea. Dulcinea, you are the lady of my dreams. I've been looking for you all my life. And when I see you, I see nothing but heaven. And as you watch the play, you see that she slowly starts to embrace this name. And it actually changes her, changes who she is. So that by the end of the movie, when some other character calls her Aldonza, she corrects them and says, no, I'm Dulcinea. What hope do we have in the midst of scrutiny? with the condemning voices that we hear. God's love for us is steadfast. His redemption is so complete that we cannot be called nobody or a failure, underachiever, Scott Norwood, wide right. Because we've been united with Christ 
God sees nothing but beauty. He is blinded by our purity. And he can only call us dulcinea, sweetness. We can wait on God. Our hope is not shaky, but it is solid and secure. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I, I ask that you would give us your mercy, your grace, that we might be able to take all that we need to from this passage. Or anything that we don't need to hear that's not good for us, I ask that you would take that away as well. And I pray that you would connect the dots as only you can. That we would love you with all our heart, with all our mind, and all our soul, and all our strength. Give us great hope. Make us enthusiastic for the good news, for the joy of this city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.